0: Yale Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through a few episodes of this podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of that issue subject matter. I am your host, Helen Balinson, a, a fifth year graduate student now in the immunology department here at Yale, and co editor in chief of YJBM. Um, today, I'm bringing you a very special episode in conjunction with our September 2018 issue on medical technology, and I am very, very excited to introduce uh, Drs. Kristaps Keggy and Jetsa Twakli. Welcome to the YJBM podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be chatting about Yale Surgical Firsts and chronicling Yale's role in a number of technological innovations in orthopedics, and I'm sure having a really exciting conversation. Uh, we are just talking about... Um, Dr. Keggi's experience in Russia and the Soviet Union with uh, surgery, so I'm so excited to have you guys here. Thank you. Um, could you. Could we start off with both of you, please, introducing yourself and kind of your roles here at Yale, and uh,
2: yeah. Go ahead. Uh, all right, well, I've been around Yale since 1951, having uh, gotten out of uh, World War II uh, in Europe and on the United States in 1949 and matriculating at Yale in 1951, Yale College and the Yale Medical School, and then on to uh, training at Yale primarily and being on the Yale faculty after two years in the Army. And uh, after 50 years of Orsbeek uh, surgery, uh, most of it, all of it actually involved with Yale. Uh, um, I'm now an emeritus LHU professor, no, the professorship will be in my name, but it was called the LHU professorship while well, I was having it, holding it, and uh, and my official title is uh, Chief Research Scientist or something like that, so I'm uh, no longer practicing uh, medicine, but I'm still involved in the teaching, the writing, the counseling of people, working with people like uh, Yetza and moving forward in the orthopedic world and rehabilitation, all aspects of uh, orthopedics, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm. And then I'm a, I'm a, I am am ai have a much shorter tenure here at the <coughs> Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Kagey is um, a mentor of mine, a trusted advisor, um, and I graduated from Yale College in 2001. Timothy Dwight went off to medical school, came back, um, and I joined the Yale faculty just a little bit over a year ago. So I first joined as an assistant um, clinical professor at the Yale School of Public Health and the School of Medicine. Um, and I've shifted my focus this year to kind of prioritize the School of Public Health, research, teaching. So if Dr. Kagey represents a long tenure, I represent a very short tenure, but funnily enough, we have so much in common. So <laughs> that's why he's a great mentor of mine.
2: Yeah, we're both uh, former Yale athletes, and we're in the same senior society. Uh, and, uh,
0: that's how we met. We met at a senior society gala.
1: Uh, I've I've been so fascinated by the Yale secret societies <laughs> and all of that, uh, and I'm sure we can get into chatting about that after after we finish recording. But I just um, this kind of draw. So I was also an athlete before before I came to college. I figure skated a lot and wow. was just day in day out figure skating. Um, drove my mom insane because she would drive me to the rink all the time. But um, orthopedics has always been something that has simultaneously terrified me because it means, at least for me as an athlete, it meant broken bones. It means injuries. And it was also very fascinating to me because I was, you know, doing all these jumps and spins and I was like, how am I not breaking my body? So it's always been this like admiration and big fear, but kind of, could you both kind of go into why, why orthopedics? And was it kind of the similar fascination kind of as athletes and experiencing your body in that way, or kind of what what is the big draw of orthopedics for you, both from a medical standpoint and kind of your your start in orthopedics?
2: Well, I mean, it's sort of fun to have had the kind of career I've had. I mean, I really have not thought of it as work. It's been a way of life, and I continue leading that way of life. But one of the more exciting things is uh, to uh, kind of have people like Yetza carry on uh no, granted, she's not a surgeon, but she's part of orthopedics and rehabilitation, and actually a lot of future may not be surgery, but so she's, uh, so, I mean, it gives me, uh, as part of my kind of ongoing productive productiveness as a member of society in Yale, I think it's fun to be working with people like Jetsa and, and watch her evolve and, and hope that she goes on and uh, does wonderful, wonderful things uh, over the next uh, 50 years uh, or 60 <laughs> by the time you get around that, that level, we'll all kinds of modern drugs and you're (laughs) like 20 years old at age 80 so you'll be able to do all kinds of stuff so
0: (laughs) yeah and like Dr. Kage was saying in addition to teaching um for me you know Helen you know from from the culture of sports and the culture Mm -hmm. of orthopedics are actually really similar I mean so you know from your career as a figure skater Dr. Kage's career as a fencer my career as a track athlete there are tangible outcomes to training and competing in sports right there's a performance goal there's a very disciplined lifestyle that goes along with achieving any kind of repute in your sport. Um, There's a certain mindset around kinesthetic learning, moving, the importance of mobility, and keeping your body active no matter what. Um, And that's, I think, the culture of orthopedics as well. I'm a non-operative orthopedist. Tachikage is an operative orthopedist. And I think we have a lot um, of overlap in the way we approach the human body. We're fascinated Mm -hmm. by the way it works and what kind of decisions to make in terms of getting it work better when something breaks, right? Or something is injured or something is not functioning as properly as it could. Um, so I think the performance element, I think the sort of tangible outcomes that can be objectively measured that really drew me because um, it's the way I think as an athlete. Most athletes, I think in most sports, I don't know about esports, but at least in, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know about that, but in like in most sports, um, maybe they, they think that way. Um, and you know, from your career, as a young figure skater, you know how grueling it is mentally mm-hmm. um, and how performance-orientated it is, and there are tangible outcomes. And mobility is a goal no matter what, right? You've got to find a way to keep the body moving. Um, that's what it's inclined to do. I believe that as an athlete, as a, I was a personal trainer. And then as a public health scientist, um, I work a lot with athletes that have physical disabilities, mm-hmm. and you'd be amazed what people with severe impairments can do um, despite their limitations. So I'm interested in the, keeping the body moving. Um, and operative orthopedists um, like Dr. Kagi and non-operative, I think, have the same uh, fundamental interest.
2: Well, I think you got to remember that our department is the Department of Orthopedic, Orthopedics and Rehabilitation. And rehabilitation. I mean, it's to uh, go hand in hand, uh, and I think that's very important. And I think uh, I was part of that. Renaming of the department many many years ago when we were just orthopedic surgery or whatever but when they became orthopedics and rehabilitation and I think it's been a very important aspect of uh, kind of that whole sort of process of surgery and rehabilitation and making people better continuum. Keeping him in motion and pain-free.
0: Exactly, and then also functioning as part of a team. So, Dr. Kigge um, if you if you if you look at his track record in in terms of teaching and mentoring, um, he's very consistently putting his mentees first, giving them stages, giving them outlets for present presenting their thoughts, their work, their ingenuity, their their sort of imaginative advances, and having a sense of being on a team is a big part of orthopedics too, um, and finding a way to. Make everybody feel relevant valued and 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 participatory is part of it it's a huge part of this culture, of orthopedics and rehabilitation
1: <laughs> yeah, Dr. keggy, when I was reading your your essay that you let me gave me the honor of reading through, I was really struck by how much you gave credit to your mentors and the people that kind of were here at Yale when you first started and kind of the programs that you were involved with. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit kind of starting off at Yale or starting off at Yale in surgery afterwards and kind of who were some of those leading characters that really inspired you to stay in orthopedics? I'm sure there were moments maybe that you were hesitant about staying in there or kind of of leading figures that really drove you to be the successful surgeon that you are today. Well,
2: I think the whole thing, I, I applied to only one medical school, uh, and that was uh, Yale, as opposed to people these days applying to 35, 40 <laughs> medical schools. <laughs> and I was accepted in uh, in October of my senior year, and then kind of was trying to make up my mind whether to go to medicine or not, but it came to Yale primarily because of the Yale system, which was created by a man, by Dean Winternitz, who had been uh, a dean uh in the 30s and 40s and so on, and then he created the Yale system, basically, which consisted of <clears throat> speaking people for the medical school who were graduates of college graduates who, by definition, were educated and smart, and in theory should know what they had to know to be practicing physicians, and they did not need to be quizzed every day and have hour tests every two days and, you know, three-hour tests once a week and and uh, so I think I, I like that. And it also gave, it gave you a chance to start thinking about what you really want to do. In other words, if you're interested in surgery, then you spend more time in uh, things like anatomy. And, and if you're interested in, in uh, say, treatment of cancer, then you could spend more time in pathology or biochemistry. And and that's my, one of my first mentors, really, was <clears throat> Dr. Gardner, who was a professor of anatomy, Dr. Gardner, and there was also a phil- Dr. Creelan, who were both anatomists, and Dr. Gardner was, when I was not, did not know my stuff when I came around on dissections, Dr. Gardner would look at me and say, no, Dr. Kiggy, you're big enough, and chances are you'll be an orthopedic surgeon, you know, you got to know this stuff, you know, he'd say, you know, and uh, so I'd say, yes, Dr. Gardner, and then they, <laughs> he was right, you know, a few years later, I was headed into orthopedic surgery, and then. Of course, uh, you know, people like uh, Dr. Linsk- uh, Linskog, who was Gustav Linskog, who was a chairman of uh, surgery in those days. I mean, he was a very uh, very much like my father of uh, sort of Swedish-Nordic origin, you know, not very communic- not very talkative, but, uh, and, but you knew exactly where you stood with him. And if you stood well with him and wrote you a letter of recommendation, that was a passage to any residency in the country, you know, that was like a golden ticket to anywhere (laughs) but if uh if you uh didn't show up to conferences on time I mean he wrote you off as an airhead and uh, that was Mm -hmm. the end of your surgical career you might as well go into pharmacology or something but (laughs) but then great uh, Great professional. and uh, anyway Dr. Linscog, uh you know thought that was okay and had a future in surgery so that was that was very comforting. No, <laughs> and of course, Dr. Glenn was a cardiac surgeon and that was the early days of cardiac uh, surgery. And And uh, he asked me to come back. I was off his service, but he asked me to come back from, had to get special permission from the Dean for me to come back from pediatrics where I was uh, rotating and to be on as the student on the first official open heart case at Yale. So I was number 17 on the team and uh, and he really tried to get me to go to cardiac surgery, but uh, I, know, I used to uh, avoid that. Well, actually, was, <laughs> that ended up by being my second choice, but uh, you know, then my thesis was on pelvic exonerations with you know, with Dr. Morse, uh, you know, excising, you know, bladders and colons and, uh, you know, implanting ureters and this, that, the other thing, and it was very uh, intriguing surgery, and I learned a lot about gynecology and uh, urology and general surgery with and at the end of it all, I decided I did not, did not want to be a gynecologist nor a cancer surgeon. And then Dr. Southwick came along, and he was the enthusiastic mentor that led you know, a couple of generations of us into major, major careers. He produced more chairmen of departments and uh, you know professors and leaders in North Beach and I guess anybody of that era. And he came, and I was his uh, fourth year medical student when he arrived. And, and then I came back to Yale, and I was his first Yale Medical School graduate to train with him at Yale. So that was—and he was really a mentor, and I was with him up until a few days before he died, uh, you know, a few years ago. I mean, he was—we kind of, had our ups and downs, but we were very, very close, and then and I, I, I owe him a lot. And, mm-hmm. and so that's—those were my primarily sort of mentors at Yale, so— but yeah,
1: that's very uh mm. Dean Winterness was actually the one who founded the Yale Journal. Mm-hmm. Um so it's very it's very touching to see how much <coughs> he's actually impacted kind of the, medical student community
2: and the thing about Dr. Southig was also that he was he was uh in many ways he, he was kind of a, uh um well, not a lot of people he was controversial to say the least because renegade, yeah. he arrived uh Cowboy. and uh he, if he, uh, thought you could do the surgery, he would say, okay, well, Chris, you can do it, and, uh, I'll be there to help you, and then he might not show up, and so on my, my first operation, when I came back from two years of general surgery at the, at the VA as a 26-year-old, uh, you know, whatever, just two years out of medical school, was a hemipelvectomy, and, uh, he, uh said, oh, I'd be there, but he never showed. So, uh, you know, I did the operation. I was, you know, the main surgeon with another resident helping me, and we did the operation. I mean, obviously, I'd spent half the night the night before, you know, looking up every anatom- I mean, every facet of the anatomy and every conceivable way of doing the operation. And, and you know, and, and that's the way it went. And as a result of it, we did uh, a lot of, you know, sort of uh, new things that, mm-hmm. that he encouraged to do. If he thought of it and he thought it was a good idea, he said, you can do it, you know, mm-hmm. like... Uh, you know, we talk about the first, like, the the anti-approach to hip surgery being a first. Uh, but long before that, for example, I had decompressed a vertebral artery that, uh, with arthritis of the spine that hadn't hadn't been done before. That was because Dr. Southwick said, oh, you can do it. But uh, obviously I had spent hours and hours in the library. As a matter of fact, I mean, this is days before computers and all that kind of stuff. But, so I knew everything that you could possibly imagine about vertebral arteries. and decompress that. And then uh, Ben Bradburn and I were among the first to excise uh, vertebral bodies, the cervical spine, to decompress uh, spines with osteoarthritis. And then Senator Barrasso, whose picture I showed you, uh, and I published an article where I was excising three or four vertebral bodies, uh, you know, in people with tumors and bad arthritis. And so, but these are all the kind of things that Dr. Sothic would encourage you to do, because if they made sense to him and made sense to you, then he say, oh, you can do it. That's a great idea. You know, and then and as a result, I mean, that was what I did, and then, and then the, the, but there, there was I was not unique. I mean, there were many, many other people in the department who had similar things. But of course, there were the other residents in the department who really hated that. They did not. You know, obviously, there's always that spectrum of people. There, those of us who were willing to do it, and then there are the others at the other end of the spectrum that were kind of, well, you know, I don't feel comfortable, you know, you know <laughs> and, and all that kind of stuff. But um, it for, for me, it was just an ideal situation, and I liked it, and we did it, and we kind of had fun doing it, and it uh, was very constructive, and Dr. Southick liked it, and uh, it was it fun.
0: Amazing. It sounds amazing.
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess, so I'm am a I'm a graduate student, so all of my scientific efforts have been on a bench, and I'm kind of always you know i'm always hesitant to approach even a new protocol that's mm-hmm. just involving like liquids and proteins and i can't even imagine kind of going in and doing a surgery for the first time that doesn't have a protocol is so you mentioned kind of staying and studying a lot is that the main the main way that you would prepare for something novel just kind of reading and preparing or did you have to practice on animals or was it predominantly just getting into the surgery and just having the wealth of knowledge that you had. Well, I
2: mean, I mean it all started out, if you were interested, we come back to the Yale system. I mean, you, mm-hmm. if you were interested in the surgery, then you took, uh, you know, in your third year of medical school, you became a, a prosector in anatomy. And then mm-hmm. in your fourth year of medical school, if you were good at being a prosector, sector you became chief prosector. So uh, it was both. So that I had, you know, two extra years of anatomy, dissection of cadavers. And so that certainly was very helpful and, and doing surgery, and then uh, the other thing that's kind of interesting is uh, that in speed surgery you gotta have a sort of three-dimensional sense, and, and uh, I, for some reason, uh, uh, had that. Uh, you know, obviously the anatomy helped, but uh, when I was a freshman at Yale uh, College, they gave us this test where they tested your abilities against your own abilities, and I was bopping along, and then all of a sudden there was this thing that was way out of line, and. And, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, what is that? It's just, it was a three-dimensional perception of things. Mm-hmm. And, and I did not think much of it until I started teaching orthopedic sort of or people, and I realized that there are people who, uh, you know, think in one, mm-hmm. visualize things only in one plane, and then to have uh, kind of a three-dimensional feel of things also helps. Yeah. But, I mean, those are the kinds of, you know, Then yeah. then the whole, back to sports, for example, uh, decision-making, mm-hmm. you know, as, an, as a, you know, I was, mm, felt strongly that you know the former athletes who had uh, the discipline of training like Yetza, you know always had the uh, uh, you know were, were you know had learned how to win had learned how to lose how to make uh, bad decisions work uh, and i think that that was also helpful uh, you know but but then above all just the night before surgery reading and studying and, <laughs> and trying to put the whole thing together and then the next morning you know a cold sweat pouring down your armpits you Know, be in the operating room and, 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 and then carry through what you had figured out or yeah. you hope you'd have figured out, and that's that's that, that's the wonderful learn. And yeah. Well, on that subject, might as well. Dr. Sauter was also, I, uh, had served in Korea in the war as a surgeon with the Marines, and, and so he, he had us all uh, learn about uh, war surgery and uh, you know, treatment of the war wounds and so on. So that uh, we were all skilled in that. So when I got to Vietnam, you know, we got. I'd, you know, Dr. Salzik's experience with war wounds and that—that that helped in the jungles of Vietnam and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the MASH hospital. But, mm-hmm. but uh, so I mean, there, but so anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, person. I'm sorry to jump in if that's okay with you, Helen. Yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> but I mean, I just hear as Dr. Kage was alluding to so many overlaps between orthopedics and the preparation that Dr. Kage received in sports. Right? I mean, you can imagine if you're getting ready for uh, ice, ice, um, a figure skating performance. I mean, it's a year over year iterative process, a very intentional preparation, right, in, in a certain direction. Um, that's kind of what Dr. Kagi was talking about, about being a pro-sector, and then after that, um, going on to the actual residency, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one thing at on the individual level, having literally a purposed preparation um, in a year-over-year iterative way. But then also under the guise of someone like Dr. Southwick, who set the tone in terms of the legacy that Yale Orthopedics sort of has and has con- continued to um, prom- propagate, is an advisor, a mentor who is brilliant but also instills confidence in you and kind of puts you – it's not exactly trial. What is trial by fire in a a, a way? Um, But it's it's selection of people who are self-masters, right, who are self-motivated, but then who under the guise of someone like Southwick who is happy to put people in a space where they've got to figure it out on their own, make bad decisions work. Um, to me there 's so just so many overlaps between that and sports because coaches serve that role sometimes um parents advisors serve that role, older athletes serve that role. but I just see the cultures um between orthopedics, particularly here at Yale um Dr. Kiki having lived that legacy and athletics so
1: yeah and i and i can't imagine like like as as you said like as an athlete when you 're in that split point decision, you spent years and years accumulating up to this point, and what if your topic breaks, or your shoe unties. You kind of have to play with it, and you kind of gotta trust your gut. And you only trust your gut because of all of the coaching and all of the mentorship that you had to. That other people trust your gut, so you're like, okay, they're smart. I trust them. They trust me, and I got this.
2: Well, I mean, it's also interesting. I've been through this for years and years and years, and kind of discussing it and debating it, you know. And and uh, there, those of us in the department, uh, for example, that that feel stronger that. Anybody can tra- be trained to be a North speaking surgeon, and I sit there and said, no, "Well, mm-hmm. just uh, hold on for a second. You know, <laughs> that may not necessarily be the case, you know. And, but there are people who uh, really think that, and I think to be politically correct, that is the case, you know. If you want to be a North speaking surgeon, we'll make your North speaking surgeon know what kind of North speaking surgeon you're going to be, or for how long you will be a North speaking surgeon before you become an administrator <laughs> uh, is another question. But uh, you know, we can uh, you know get through the course. Uh, and yeah. call you a North Beach surgeon, you know, seven years from now. But uh, <laughs> it's that what you want? I mean, yeah. it, but to be politically correct, I mean, the answer is yes. You know, we'll take you a woman. We'll take, uh, you know, a man. We'll take uh, whoever you name all this politically correct. Uh, you know the definitions, uh, <laughs> you okay. know, everybody can be an orthopedic surgeon, but, uh, but know, I'm sure
1: uh, there need, there there's some passion behind it too. Because mm-hmm. I'm no matter what, if you're in these surgeries, I I can't. I mean, I had foot surgery a couple of years ago, and that took hours. <laughs> so if you're in an operating room for hours under this pressure, you have to have this passion and excitement about it year after year, which I'm sure. Breaks people away from. They go into surgery or whatever field, and after a while, they're like, "You know what? This is not as exciting, or I'm not as excited about this particular topic." It, but I
2: mean, the sad part of it is that when the people get into uh, get into the field, and this I'm not talking about the future, but people who sort of uh, got into Earth Peace and. Kind of because uh, i know one fellow whose wife talked him into becoming a whiz surgeon. Well, he retired as soon as he could possibly get out of there, and you know, everybody operating every operation was a was a torture. I mean, he would you know be in a cold sweat, you know, he you know, kind of was just was not comfortable in the operating room. You know, he should have been an internist, or really. but I mean, he got. But the uh, and and then there are those people who uh, get in that situation and have heart attacks in their early, late thirties, early forties, because every every operation is a frustration, and and then or they become administrators, and you know, well, there's room for administrators, obviously, and there's more and more of them around, and with there algorithms and this and that? <laughs> no comments.
1: So Dr. Craigie, you mentioned the the army several times. I was just very curious as to how those experiences that you had in the field have impacted you as a surgeon kind of back home and whether how those experiences have changed your approach to surgery and whether they have changed their approach to surgery or whether it's kind of impacted you. I'm sure in in some way,
2: yeah. Well, I think the uh, here again. I think we got to start looking at uh, uh, Yale, and uh, you know they serve uh, the whole uh, uh, medical historical library. And, and uh, if you're uh, uh, kind of, uh, you should have. I, th- I think as a medical student, to serve an interest in in, uh, in the history of medicine, mm-hmm. you should have an interest not only history of medicine 300 years ago but even in uh, the history of medicine you know stuff that was being done 30 40 years ago I mean you can learn a lot but if you go back uh, to uh, war surgery I mean there, the the uh, war has uh, always been a school for surgeons and if you look at up until the end of the 19th century any progress in surgery was uh, made uh, you know in war and uh, with war surgery and so on it wasn't until you know, 1890, you know, and general anesthesia and all kinds of new things that were happening that people were, uh, you know, got away from just the wars being a school for surgeons. And, and uh, but, you know, if you read the, you know, and I was fortunate enough to, as I said, be a part of that uh, Yale uh, History of Medicine uh, section with Dr. Forbes when he was a professor and had a seminar on that. And then I was, as I said, the student editor of the Journal of the... Yale journal of the history of medicine and allied sciences and so in those days also if you were kind of recognized as being one of a group you were allowed to go down into the stacks of the library and go through these uh you know uh, you know books that are worth you know hundreds of thousands of dollars now and you just be able to sit there and leaf through them and look at the illustrations from mm-hmm. Ambroise Paré and some of the war surgeons and Vesalius and and uh you know as you look at look at that I mean that that certainly had a lot to do with my kind of uh, approach to war surgery. And mm-hmm. I was, when I got there, I was considered myself, I mean, really, I was very much aware of the fact that it was just a continuation of this kind of uh, horrible stuff that goes on at orbit at the same time, also very conscious of the fact that if properly done, I think you can do a lot of good. You can save uh, people's lives, you can save people's limbs, and, and uh, you have to learn from... Uh, you know your predecessors, people like Dr. Southwick and um, you know everybody before him. And uh, again, I felt very fortunate having had Dr. Southwick and also having had the privilege of being uh, part of the Yale Historical Library and looking at some of these old books. And and uh, so when I got to Vietnam, I was uh, kind of uh, not exactly at home, but but uh, I, I had a pretty good idea, you know, what to expect. And and it was also interesting too uh, when I started. Writing about it or thinking about it and reading some of the old stuff, uh, the old uh, like Ambroise Paré and you know his descriptions of war surgery. I mean, some of them, so some of his thinking as he was taking care of you know eighteen, nineteen year old boys, uh, you know, four hundred years ago in in the war, uh, identical to the thinking that we were going through as we were operating on uh, nineteen year old, uh, you know, young men from you know Kansas and New York and. Mississippi that had their arms shattered or you know legs blown off and mm-hmm. and uh, so I think uh, I felt very much a part of that uh, kind of it's, it's it's it was sort of a continuum and I think the and I learned a lot I think uh, one of the things that was also uh, in Vietnam I was uh, in the first uh, surgical hospital in the country and and uh, for uh, quite a while I was the only orthopedic surgeon in 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 a combat zone and had to make decisions at the age of 30 about, you know, whether to take a leg off or whether to do this without anybody to consult. I mean, here you know, I was, you know, was kind of having to do, uh, kind of make things work or, or assume responsibility and then or do something and then live with that decision. And I think that sort of carried over uh, later on in life with doing... Uh, major operations, uh, and especially uh, later on in life, going to Russia and working in with marginal instruments, with marginal assistants in marginal hospitals, you know, taking on <laughs> major, major cases because, you know, it was kind of, well, it made sense to be doing it, and and uh, having had Dr. Sazek and having had this war training, it was... You know, people, you know, thought I was crazy to be, you know, operating on, you know, the wife of the commanding officer of the Warsaw Pact Forces in (laughs) nowhere. But, you know, but, you know, having had all this previous experience, it was not that big a deal. You know, I knew I could screw up, but the chances of screwing up were not that great. And so you did it and did it because you'd done it before in Vietnam and you'd done it as a resident of the South and, you know, so on to the Kremlin hospital in Moscow. And <laughs> to, <you> know, <laughs> no big deal. Whatever. But I mean, so I think uh, war surgery was, you know, it's it's horrible stuff, and I, I can get choked up about it sometimes when I think about mm-hmm. it. But but uh, and there's a very, very special bond. In other words, I'm uh, several people that are, were patients of mine I still keep up with, and I'm supposed to go visit one of them. I was supposed to do it last week, but hopefully I'll get there this weekend to see him at, a Yale graduate, as a matter of fact, a Yale athlete who had both his legs shattered and and uh, managed to leave his legs on. And, and, you know, there's a special bottom. We can sit there and drink wine and, and not talk about the war, but I mean, there's something very special having. Mm-hmm. You know, I sit with that guy and and, uh, and uh, you know, I remember his operations vividly and making a decision to leave his legs on and you know, in retrospect, it might have been a good idea to take him off because he went through you know, three years of all kinds of misery in a naval hospital and he's even though he has his legacy, every year he has to go back and has to have some sort of reoperations. You know, so yeah, there's this kind of stuff that you think about and uh, you know learn from. I like mm-hmm. to think, uh, and uh, so it makes you a better surgeon or a better person or or whatever. Uh, but uh, you know, but so war is a major major uh, school for surgeons uh, was, still is and. Mm-hmm. And when you know, I went down for example, gave a lecture of my experience of Vietnam to the people at uh, Walter Reed about eight nine years ago. You know, the stuff that I was telling him was exactly what they were doing with minor modifications. Uh, you know, except for the fact that these days the younger orthopedic surgeons don't know how to put on a cast, so they use these called external fixators. So that that's you know, I, I keep. Teasing the younger residents was saying, You gotta learn how to put on a cast, you know, and then, you know, that's old fashioned. You, know, so <laughs> you, you can do it, but, you know, but I mean, they, they really should be learning that kind of stuff. So, because, is it
1: something that you would, it seems like your answer to this question would be a very resounding yes, but would you recommend that? medical students focus a large part of their education not only on kind of learning the current techniques but also the past techniques of kind of particularly in surgery and what what is the importance in that for you kind of seeing the generation come up obviously learning to how to put casts on I didn't even know that that was no longer in style I still remember being a kid and asking all my friends to sign my casts um and it being my favorite part of having a broken leg but um what do you? What is the benefit that you see in students who do take the time to learn about the history of medicine, learn about the history of surgery, um, and do you see that manifesting in better doctors? And I guess in your experience, kind of how has taking the time to learn the history made you a better doctor?
2: Well, I mean, there used to be the standard uh, uh, joke, if you want to call it that, that. If you think you uh, had thought of a new operation, mm-hmm. uh, think again, just go back and read the German literature from thirty, forty, fifty years ago, and <laughs> you'll find that the Germans were doing it you know fifty years before you even thought of it then and uh, you know that also happens to be the case for example, with uh, the, uh, the the operation that I'm kind of pioneered in this country, the direct anti approach to hip replacement. Well, you know, sure, I mean, I did it and I did it differently than, uh, you know, most people and, and, you know, it's been a success and, you know, I get whatever, all kinds of credit for for, for that and, and it's, it's sort of fun but, but the fact of the matter is that the Germans were doing a similar approach uh, long before, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I started and one of the reasons I was doing it was probably because I'd read about it and, you know, Germans were doing it and, you know, I modified this, that, the other thing but, you know, introduced in this country but... But the bottom line is the Germans, you know, had been doing it before, you know, and then, and, you know, and then you know, in the papers that we published, we sort of mentioned that, that there was nothing kind of new, but I mean, but our, our approach was kind of a little different, and we introduced it, and it was, well, here we are, you know, we've got a book on the subject, and, you know, I get whatever... Uh, several thousand hits on ResearchGate. research gate. For, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> so if I were running for associate, if bucking for associate professor, that would be very helpful. <laughs>
0: no, yeah. I'm no, I mean... Rambling I, on, but... No, I would... You were trying to ramble on. <laughs> no, I would definitely agree with that... Um, the concept that I mean there's a, there's a proverb that you know in my culture from uh, West, I'm from West Africa um, it's, it's called Sankofa so it's you know in order to move forward you must look backwards so I, I mean I, I I'm fully I believe in that um, from a personal standpoint but also from a Um, professional standpoint. So, you know, war is a school for Mm -hmm. surgeons, but then to expand on that, it's also a school for orthopedics in general. So non-surgical orthopedics or non-operative orthopedics also grew out of war. So my field, physical medicine and rehabilitation, was founded on the heels of World War II when war-wounded citizens came back, and there was literally no place for them to go. Clinically, there's no house. Should they go to the orthopedist? Should they go to the internal medicine doctor? Should they go to just a physical therapist? And so physiatry was kind of born on the heels of war. Um, Some of the patients Dr. Kage alluded to, people who had their legs um, shattered, and maybe there was a question of now that they're still functional secondary to the uh, modern advances in medicine, how can we optimize their quality of life with what they have? And so I think war is a school for surgeons. Yeah, it's a school for orthopedics, whether it's non-operative or operative. And I think that it's really wonderful for me like to look at the work of Sir William Gutman in the UK at the Stoke Mandeville Hospital, the founder of the Paralympic Games. He took spinal cord injured um, patients who were the most desolate, literally they were called the most desolate um, unit at the hospital and said they still have their ar- those who had their arms, they can play archery. They can play bacha. They can shoot a rifle. And then he founded the Paralympic Games on the lawn of the Spinal Cord Injuries Unit at the Stoke Mandeville Hospital. So somebody with a little bit of imagination, vision, and a sense of what's possible despite the impossible founded my field. Um, Same thing with Frank Cruisen here in this country. War-wounded citizens came back, and there was a sense of, well, they're here. What do we do with them? Physiatry was born on the heels of that. So... I, deep, I, I, I deeply believe that looking back is a critical part of increasing your sensitivity to what's possible, but also almost generating a more imaginative sense of what's possible from looking at what's, what the predecessors have gone before us. Um, and then at the same time, you know, I, that was all very sort of long-winded and eloquent. But at the same time, if you look back, you also see sometimes, this. you know, you just keep it simple. <laughs> keep it simple, stupid. You know, that, that expression. Um, and and Kiss. You can, yeah keep it simple, stupid <laughs> um it's it, that's what they did. I mean he He was on the lawn of a hospital, founded the Paralympic Games. Frank Cruising took war wounded um, citizens and said, You know what? I'm going to try to improve every aspect of your life, whether it's your function socially as a father or as a mother, whether it's your function professionally, we can reeducate you, retool you to be something productive in society or your function physically." We can find a way to get you to move better with various devices. Simple. So I I I'm excited about the idea that orthopedics, whether it's operative or non-operative, was founded in antiquity. And we can learn a lot from that.
1: Yeah, I didn't realize just how much imagination this field is founded on and how much creativity and obviously a lot of a lot of knowledge of anatomy, physiology, human like social, psychiatric states, but also just creativity, and and the kind of desire to try something new, and
0: yeah. Yeah, keep people mobile, 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 in their own lives, whether it's socially, mentally, emotionally, or physically.
2: To come back to that uh, business where everybody can be an Earth Big Surgeon, I mean, I I don't want to, you know, I tend to, you know, diplomacy is not my strong (laughs) suit. No, no, not really. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know say it say the way i see it but 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 the uh the fact of the matter is that orthopedics has also changed, so that some of the people that I was kind of dismissing in earlier statements oh. that really uh when they get through basic training this horsespe now has so many subspecialties mm-hmm. that uh you know if you're not you know if you're you know don't like the sight of blood. You can become a hand surgeon and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sit down and... And you don't have to stand, and you can you know you kinda listen to uh, Mozart in the background and do your tiny little work uh, <laughs> on you know, tendons and, and <laughs> whatever. Well, I, I considered hand surgery, and I worked with some of the greatest <laughs> hand surgeons <laughs> in the world, like Bill Littler and <laughs> Bob Chase. But was but it, I, the, Beethoven, so was it the Beethoven? Beethoven that surgeon, kept or, you away from it? <laughs> I think it was the, I think Mozart but, actually, more but, Mozart. Uh, Mozart? Yeah, yeah, List
0: not so much Beethoven. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you can
2: you know so there are many options. You know. You can, so, you know, I think mean, there's room for everybody. So come aboard. We'll teach yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Helen,
0: we're like shamelessly recruiting <laughs> you do No, I mean,
1: like, I am very just, I'm always in awe of what, how orthopedics can change someone's life, whether it's in a way that's someone, I mean, i like broken foot you fix their foot and but it's also just as you said like showing people there's a new way of life so even if for example if someone were to lose their leg and had to have the surgery for that or any kind of non-operational things where you orthopedics is where that kind of inspiration lies I'm like no you're not done like you still have everything going for you and it's yeah, I think it's really exciting and really inspirational.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I guess kind of my my biggest question is kind of what what is next. So, I there's been so many surgeries that have come forward. There's been so many non-surgical hurdles that have been bounded. So, what what are the biggest hurdles that exist right now that you would like to see? jumped over in the next kind of five years, twenty years, well, fifty years. There's
2: no question about the fact that there, you know, more advances can be made with uh, uh instruments and so on. But a lot of that is also uh unnecessary. us mm-hmm. come back again to not being able to put on a cast. I mean it's gotten to the point where the uh average or surgeon to come out of residency can't set the simplest fracture without having had you know, a thousand dollar CAT scan and a three thousand uh, dollar, you know, maybe not whatever it costs is a three dimensional reconstruction of the fracture, and uh, you know, so there there's uh, obviously uh, room for improvements in these fancy technologies and so on. But but then again, uh, every all of these things you know are very very expensive and and uh, you know it creates a lot of problems. But in, you know, there's room for improvement techn- technologically speaking. And uh, it's coming, and there's going to be adjustments of one sort or another. But the biggest advances in uh, in Moscow scale diseases and problems is going to be biological. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no question about that. That, for example, uh, you know, if your grandfather had arthritis of the hips and whatever, somebody is going to take you at age 15 and uh, take your DNA or whatever Mm -hmm. they take and test it and Oh yeah, you're headed for arthritis at hips, but we can modify your, you know, whatever uh, DNA that <laughs> is causing it, and you won't have arthritis at hips. I mean, there, there, are any number of uh, things of that nature. You know, stem cells, and mm-hmm. and uh, it goes on and on and on. I mean, stuff that most of us can barely understand or talk about. But that is that is where the, that is where the future is, and that's where the future of uh, you know, a lot of medicine is like uh, the treatment of cancer. I mean, uh, so much of that is based now on on um, biological uh, systems that uh, people couldn't have possibly imagined 20, 30 years ago. And I think or Speaks has said it in that direction, and there will be there are many, many improvements that are going to happen over the next, you know, and they're going to come on fairly quickly, I think. It's not, not just, uh, you know, 30 years from now. It's the kind of thing that, you know, it's like a snowball once you, once mm-hmm. you sort of kick it off at the top of the mountain. I mean, it. Accelerates and I think it's it's just here to stay and it's mm-hmm. going to come and and uh, society is going to benefit from it and uh, hopefully the cost of it will not be uh, you know such to wipe out uh, everything else in our world but uh, but uh, it's it's that's that's the future.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. I think rege- there's a huge cadre of non-surgical or non-operative orthopedists, mm-hmm. i.e., physiatrists, who are getting into regenerative mm-hmm. medicine. And, uh, in in, in droves and with a a very serious immunologically-based intent. Um, So if we can study the way that stem cells can be reappropriated to induce healing in various tissues in the body, um, in the musculoskeletal system, um, if we can learn a little bit more about the dosing that's required and the various risk factors for and against um, the use of biological uh, materials in the musculoskeletal system, then we can create orthopedic care that is sustainable ie the cost is not prohibitive and also that has an expanded global reach so I I feel that the future of orthopedics lies in models that increase sustainability and the global reach of orthopedics um, why should a first world country or a developed nation have advances that a underdeveloped nation doesn't have when it comes to um, $3,000 CAT scans versus a set of your own cells that you can spin in a centrifuge. I would go with a set of your cells that you can spin in a centrifuge. Um, and that's going to allow for sustainability and global reach. So Dr. Kegi's um, in, a, in a society for, sorry, foundation for, what is it called again? The, in, in society? No.
2: What's it?
0: Global uh, global orthopedic education. Oh
2: yes, I ran you know my work in Russia was done through what the Kiki Orthopedic Foundation, which was that's what it's called, which uh, <laughs> I started uh, when I. That all happened, you know, when I was invited. To, you know, Goodwill Games, and then a mm-hmm. year later I was to Latvia, and then they said, okay, well, why don't you do an operation, show us. So then I, in Riga, I'm in the midst of this kind of uh, bizarre operating room <laughs> with the strange... Uh, marginal equipment, uh, marginal, marginal stuff. Equipment, you know, and, but I did this anti-approach, and, you know, they were, oh, wow. And next thing you know, they they thought I was for real, and, they, you know, they wanted to establish relationships, and so I signed... An agreement between uh, the Soviet Union and the United States of America and Yale University mm-hmm. and the Soviet Academy of Science and you know I checked with the State Department, and I checked with the you know president of you know the Yale administration mm-hmm. and the dean. They say sign anything you want as long as we don't have to pay for it. <laughs> and so so I have still have these you know fifteen page agreements in Russian and uh, English you know where we did that. But anyway, we started a foundation and in uh, 88, mm-hmm. the spring of 88, and uh, started bringing over people. And we had 250 fellows uh, mm-hmm. through this foundation uh, that from all over Russia and Vietnam, and also the nurses program that we ran. We uh, uh, had nurses come over here, and then we had a nurses program. We were lucky to establish a nurses program in Oxford, England, and mm-hmm. we, we nurses came from Estonia, Latvia, Russia, to Oxford. And it was all funded by uh, contributions from... Uh, manufacturing companies which was very uh, nice I was you know I was I didn't take a salary of any kind but I mean they certainly accepted any uh, donations that they were willing to give and they were very generous and uh, all of these fellows that I brought over and all that were uh, basically uh, funded in large part by uh, these uh, uh, by the foundation which was funded by the um, you know industry and of course my my money also, and my time, I mean, I, mm-hmm. it was huge. Mm-hmm. If you think about the amount of time I was going over there six times a year, I mean, it's unbelievable, but I mean, where did I find the energy? I mean, it's, it was for the days, of kind of, again. But uh, it's, uh, uh, kind of, uh, was, uh, uh, we did it, and uh, it, uh, you know, worked, uh, yeah. and uh, so now, when I came back full time to Yale, you know, I closed down a foundation, but we want to continue the uh, international program uh, the way it is, and and so uh, there's a fund for called the Keggy Fund for International orthopedic Education mm-hmm. that is operational, and we have you know already you know some money uh, in it, uh, but we hope to be uh, doing some more fundraising and have it a really major major fund to continue an international program so that uh, Yale or speaks will be prominent in uh uh in, interna- in the international field, uh, and we'll be in a position to bring fellows over and have lecturers come over and and in that capacity my successor, Lee Rubin, is is in Riga Latvia today and signing an agreement between the one of the medical schools there and uh, you know, about exchange of fellows and then he's going to Tbilisi, Georgia and and we've had, you know, it's 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 on the way, and it will happen. And and uh, you know, I think obviously fundraising is a little different than it was uh, 20 years ago. But uh, I think there's, I think we'll uh, we'll we'll do it, and yeah. you know, I'll I'll be a part of it as long as I'm functional. So, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll have. I mean, the people it'll be fun. I'll be productive for everybody involved, and then there's, they're going to be major academic uh, achievements and, and uh, you know, again, you know, 10, 15 years from now, they'll be able to look at uh, a bunch of professors or are producers. I can look at all the professors throughout the Soviet Union and Vietnam that, you know, passed through here or the president of Latvia or the, all the people that spent time here that went back and, and you know, so, you know, there were four of them ever, as far as I know, there may be more, but, I'm aware of at least four books that my former fellows have written about hip surgery, and I think that's exciting stuff. And that's that's all that's all Yale Medicine, Yale, or speaks, and it's not just Chris Kegley. I mean, it's just uh, you know to quote uh, that famous uh, woman Hillary Clinton. You know, it takes a village. Uh, you know, and uh, you know we're, we're certainly living in a very nice village. You know, I've, I've certainly been the beneficiary of. Of uh, you know Yale from the you know from the moment they took me in as a refugee I mean mm-hmm. so uh, you know it's kind of exciting and I'm kind of very happy about that and I yeah. also I've made a point of trying to um, pay back uh, for what I have received and feel very strong about that and, and uh, so uh, uh, you know the, the the international fund that we have is just going to be a continuation of all that. Yeah, And uh, it's fun. It's, I, don't know, I can look at it and know that uh, yes, is going to be part of it and is part of it. She was already in Paris with a group of people, and and she's going to make sure that we have people from name a few of those countries in Africa. Ghana,
0: Nigeria, Zambia, <laughs> <you go>. Kenya, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, that's really part of sustainability. So,
2: it's so <laughs> that's, that's the fun, and that's, that's, that's uh, you know. Also it also comes out, senior society comes into play, you know. We didn't get accepted just to have fun and play games with each other. We got accepted to be, you know, kind of do things in good for Yale and society, and here we are, uh, me 50 years later and or 60 years later, and you 20 years later or whatever. I well, mean, maybe it seems not 15, like sorry about <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, it seems like kind of going back to this keep it simple, like with all these technological advances that are happening like, yes, they might be beneficial in, in certain situations, but in reality, like, keeping it simple makes orthopedics more accessible. It makes it maybe simpler to look at. It kind of makes it easier in situations where you're not in a big hospital with the latest technology. So, whether it's in a war situation, whether it's in a place that doesn't have a hospital, doesn't have those things, you can still get wonderful healthcare, care where the doctors are well-trained, you as a patient feel safe and excited to kind of take on those next steps. So I guess keep it simple.
2: <laughs> well, but the other thing that is worth mentioning also that, you know, this is getting in line with uh, the whole business of people going into orthopedic surgery. I mean, the, and the, some of the changes that are happening also are, the, for example, they're more, uh, more and more... Uh, uh, people that are doing basically orthopedic surgery and taking care of fractures that are not fully trained orthopedic surgeons—they're physicians' assistants or associates, PAs—and uh, uh, you know, there, there, there are more and more of them. That uh, and in smaller towns, they are the ones that are the, the, the primary orthopedic surgeons in in the emergency are setting the simple fractures, and and there are cases where doing uh, simple total hip replacements in England, for example, that's happening, and and uh, so. Uh, you know, and there's I think there's need for that because I think there's a lot of stuff that we do as orthopedic surgeons we're over trained for it you know in other words you know five years of four years of medical school and, and in some cases you know five years of medical school and fellowship and five years of residency one or two years of fellowship you know you've had 13 years of training and you're you're $300,000 in debt and uh, <laughs> it's you know there's room for you know, a three-year course after medical school, and and uh, you know, then you're a nurse midwife or in O B G Y N or you're a fracture uh, PA or whatever. Mm-hmm. And while we're on that subject, uh, uh, <laughs> one of the things that we can take credit for also in in, in this entire history of uh, yellow species is that when I came back from Vietnam, I had a, a grant from the uh, insurance. Institute Insurance for Highway Safety and uh, that grant you know, led to a lot of work that did in trauma and that led to a multi-million dollar grant to the surgery, Yale University, the surgery department which uh, built a surgical research building and started a trauma program and among other things also started a school for uh, PAs so that mm-hmm. the Yale PA school in some ways <laughs> mm-hmm. you know has something to do with it and when I came back from Vietnam I was convinced that there was room, as I'm speaking now about, there's new, need, room for lesser trained people doing work. When I came back from Vietnam, it was also obvious that having seen medics do a lot of stuff under in war conditions, you know, there's room for medics to be or similarly trained people to be doing that kind of stuff in the United States, and uh, we did not have it in those days. The yeah, med- Emergency medical technicians were not trained and we were setting up courses for them and then we've done a lot of things like that and some of those people you know uh, could be doing a lot more than they're doing now but mm-hmm. i mean but uh some of the pa stuff and the emergency medical stuff and all that is, 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 is you know you can trace some of the roots back to you know that uh initial grant that i had from the insurance institute so <laughs> it's just one of the little sidekicks and then the guy that well that was governor john thompson who was a a uh, male nurse who had and then gotten a PhD in hospital administration and he was a professor at Yale and a neighbor of ours in westville and and uh, he had some graduate students work with me and we did non non infectious epidemiological studies of trauma oh, and, uh, and you Kate. know indices of injury severity and, on and on. but it, 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 that did not excite me. So that's why I went to the <laughs> private practice. Instead of, <laughs> instead of going on and being, a you know, becoming a chairman of the department and sitting in committee meetings 75% of the time, I decided to go to Waterbury and go into private practice for the next 35, 40 years and then come back. And, uh, you know, I still maintained a position at Yale and continued teaching. And I uh, would, would have been involved in teaching pretty much every resident that's come through a system uh, for whatever those number of years. so yeah. But uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I don't have the political skills to be an administrator. <laughs> I know, I know, I know the patients, But uh, you know. But then again, who knows? I might have done great things. But calling it the way it is. What? <laughs> no, you're in your lane. <laughs> but, no, but I'm, I'm very happy about what I chose to do. Doctor Southick wasn't very happy about it. But then again, after six months, he got over it. And we pressed on to get a better but for several months after he'd gone up to Waterbury, he kept coming up with jobs for me at the University of Maryland, the chairman jobs here and there. And I said, "Well, thanks, but no thanks." But.
1: <laughs> I guess we're we're almost coming to a close with the time that we have. I could sit here and talk to you guys all day. Um, but yeah, it goes on and on. on. I mean, you've, you've heard enough. No, I guess kind of to close. I I really want um, would like to hear kind of what has been one of the most impactful or maybe just something that has happened that has really changed the way that you look at uh, treating patients or at orthopedics or something that is an event that's really inspired you or has helped you inspire other people perhaps
2: well I think one of the things that also sort of has bugged me over the years is this uh, emphasis on uh, dollars and cents in, in, in prior practice and then And, uh, you know, no, I don't take care of Medicare patients, or no, I don't take care of the, you know, uh, whatever such-and-such insurance group and so on. And and, uh, that, to me, was kind of, you know, obviously you have to make a living, and, you know, the the cost of practice medicine has gone sky high, but but, uh, I think, uh, you know, there's got to be I think a lot of physicians have, at least in this part of the world, have lost that sense of responsibility of, you know, taking care of people, you know, that not, can't necessarily afford to pay you. And, I, you know, and, and I don't have the solutions for that. And I can understand, you know, you got to pay the rent. you got to pay for the electricity. you got to pay for the paperwork, which is uh, doubling every two or three years, you know. So the days of having one assistant or secretary, as we used to call them in those days, uh, you know, for uh, two speak surgeons are gone. Now, you know, each horse-peak surgeon has to have something of four to six assistants to fill out the paperwork and the compliance system to sit by the phone and talk to insurance companies getting authorization to do the simplest bunionectomy uh, or hammer toe repair, you know. So you've got you know, people sitting on the phone, you know, put on hold and you know, all waiting for, you know... You know, assistant, assistant, assistant director of some assistant director of some insurance company, authorizing you to do a hammer toe on Mrs. Jones, who's, uh, you know, just uh, you know that kind of stuff is just uh, you know you've got to deal with those costs, and you know you can't blame the people that you know don't take people that can't pay, but there's got <laughs> to be thinking about that, and it, Having taken all comers, you know, if somebody referred somebody to me with a complex hip and I never questioned their ability to pay, I just did it as part of the process. And my father was a physician, for example, surgeon, and they, were, they never sent out a bill. And so he would do a gallbladder at somebody and they'd come back two months later doing well and then they'd say, Dr. K, you didn't send me a bill. And he said, "Oh, I know." And he, you know, and they said, well, "Well, how much do you owe you?" And then he said, "Well, what do you think it was worth to you?" And so, so they give him twenty dollars, fifty dollars, <laughs> something. So guess what? I guess who buried him when he died? I guess who took care of all those expenses? I mean, but but he was a very very happy man. I mean, he, you know, I mean that's one of the reasons why I'm in in medicine and surgery because after that being accepted to Yale medical school in october of my senior year i spent you know the rest of the year and the summer sort of thinking about you know um, international banking for example speaking four languages people said oh, you ought going to mm-hmm. be an international banker or or uh, i was up for a Woodrow Wilson fellowship in comparative literature they thought i should, you know, I should be considering that and, and well guess what at the end of the summer i decided i thought of my father and said you know he's really a uh, you know that's that's what I want to do, and and um, you know and it was a horrible decision in many ways because you know I uh, arrived at Yale and all of a sudden you know I started reading these books where I had to look up every other word in a medical dictionary. <laughs> 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 but uh, but it, uh, but he uh, he was a truly happy happy man doing uh, the work that he wanted to do and and helping people and yeah. and and, and then we've kind of lost some of that, um but uh but then again uh socialized medicine is something that I'm not in favor of. I right. feel like being a victim of communism you can uh, you know, we can talk about that for the next uh, seven hours. <laughs>
0: Oh, i 'm just so i 'm just sitting here thinking about what um, what's ins- your question was what 's inspired me in within orthopedics most and inspire, inspires me to inspire other people you know dr Kage's life his entire histories inspires me um, his courage his tenacity um, his imaginative but but I think what 's been sort of most galvanizing for me in terms of really reminding me of the power of movement of mobility, um, which is sort of the cornerstone of orthopedics and then also Um, The power of the sort of growth mindset and grit, like the capacity to do something difficult with passion, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, over a sustained period of time is my work with Paralympic athletes. Mm -hmm. Um, That's been, I think, the most inspirational part of my life so far. Um, And, you know, I guess... There's just two i guess one story comes to two stories come to mind one is one of my my one of my teammates when I was training in track and field down in Florida um, one of my teammates is a single leg amputee sprinter current world record holder in the four hundred meters um he runs for the u s and he shattered his his knee his his amputated on an amputated leg he was jumping in a in a bouncy bin one day with his kid and he literally came down wrong and tore his mCL ACL, he tore every L in the knee. (laughs) Um, And it was a year before um, the Paralympic Games. And so he was told unequivocally, you're not going to compete. I've never, you know, the surgeon said, I've never seen a knee this bad. um, But I'll fix it. And you can hope you'll be around for, you know, within five years for the next Paralympic Games. This is before the 2012 Games. So Literally, just through, he, got, he had his surgery done. Uh, so that's the operative side of orthopedics. And then the non-operative side, he had great rehab. But most importantly, I saw he had just these intangible mental skills that allowed him to, with grit and absolute growth mindset, really believing that he could do it, push through. He broke another world record at that Paralympic Games within 11 months of shattering his knee. And that was on his amputee side. That's where he had his prosthetic and so you can imagine what he had to fight through, mostly mentally, but also the just the just the resolve like dr kege's de- demonstrated throughout his entire career the imagination, the courage the the perseverance that's that's essentially dr kege's career, you know, but also his <laughs> his athletics career and I think for me, athletes with impairments oftentimes because of stories like that, they just show me and i and I share it with my patients all the time, they just show me that. It's not always just the physical that, that leads to a certain performance or a certain outcome or a certain, a certain end. I think a lot of times it's, there's a mental um, skill set there um, that I think is founded on growth, mindset, and grit. And um, that's probably what I've learned and taken the most inspiration from over the course of my career. And I share it with my patients all the time when I say, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Um, I oftentimes will bring up stories like that just to share that, well, it's possible to overcome seemingly impossible things um, with a certain set of, you know, um, circumstances, many of which are internally generated.
2: Well, we published an article on a non-operative management of knee injury, you know, knee ligament That surgery. ACL,
0: yeah, that's right. And I, and I went and I had surgery uh, to Dr. Kiki Um <laughs> he, he actually recommended me to just um, um, rehab my ACL, <laughs> but I got surgery. I was like, ah. So we'll see how I do in 10 years. <laughs>
2: well, we'll see, but...
1: Anyway, um, I guess with that, I really don't want to say this, but I think we have to wrap up. Um, Thank you again so much for both of you for being here. Um, I just now just want to go and just only read about orthopedics, both the surgical side, the historical side, and the non-surgical side of it, just because, I mean, I'm very much obsessed with history of medicine, and I just think it's...
2: One more, one more thing. Is, yeah, no, of course. <laughs> having, having uh, you know, this is, uh, again, uh, having spent a lot of time in Russia, this is obviously mm-hmm. the time of Glasnost and so on, and, you know, having shown you some of the pictures of the people I met through uh, from, uh, you know, Riga to Vladivostok and uh, from uh, Novosibirsk to, uh, you know, to uh, Irkutsk. Uh, you know, the, the, the people that you meet in Russia, I mean, the the um, one person here that I was looking at, I mean, it was that engineer who built the, you know, biggest atom bomb. His his hobby, he reads Shakespeare and Goethe on the side. I mean, they're the intelligent, bright people in Russia are such that, I mean, we have to do everything possible to get on working terms with the Russians. And the comedy that's been going on the last uh, year and a half is just so pathetic in my eyes that, I mean, obviously Putin is... And then you know I'm not defending Putin in any way, shape, or form. But I mean, we got to do everything possible to, to kind of uh, deal with them. They're not the enemy. They're they're you know they are should be our allies in the future of mankind. That we're not talking about you know. Uh, so anyway, that's my. So let's do something about that. And as ORP surgeons, we can certainly help with international programs and yeah. you know get them uh, going. <laughs> and, and I think that's I feel strong about that. And that's why we're continuing. Uh, the work uh, that we're doing, or at least that's why I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing, and that's why Lee Rubin is in Riga and now, and then and, uh, so that we can establish not only a good uh, relationships orthopedically, but also help in this overall uh, worldwide, um, you know, scheme of uh, keeping things at peace and working together. And you know, mm-hmm.
1: I think that's something that's so international and not even national, just human, is that we want to move, we want to run, we want to be present and be oh, present well. in one location and another location and yeah. orthopedics is really what's well, again, getting uh, us there. <laughs> we can, disc- can
2: discuss the Russian issue for the next uh, whatever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and if you're
2: tired of that then we'll go back to the Vietnam and War and I'll debate <laughs> that with you. But uh,
1: <laughs> Um, Yeah, so just kind of to wrap up, thank you again for joining us on this very special uh, podcast um, in association with our September 2018 issue on uh, medical technology. Um, And we want to say a Big thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home to YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for all your help. Um, I also want to say a big thank you to my co-EIC, Fatima Mirza, who supports everything this journal does. Um, And if you want to check out our journal, we are free to read uh, at PubMed. If you just search Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine, you can email us for more information at yjbm at Uh, yale.edu. And we'll see you next month for the next installation.